0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes, and, drumroll, drumroll, David French. Welcome back, David.
1: Well, oh, thank you, and thank you for letting me guest in yet another one of the podcasts you're hosting.
0: <laughs> All right, we are going to hit a lot of topics today. As you can imagine, we will start with what everyone seems to be kind of waiting on talking about this week which is the potential pending indictment of Donald Trump coming out of New York City. We will also talk about the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war. And finally, a little bit on misinformation. Steve, David, all of us have been having separate conversations about this pending indictment and feelings. <laughs> and I think we all actually feel a little differently about it. And so I just want to start from that place, set aside the politics and whether this will help Donald Trump or hurt Donald Trump. And the law, which David and I covered in some detail on advisory opinions, uh, the episode that came out on Thursday morning. But what's your just big picture take, Jonah?
2: Um, so uh, this shouldn't be too much of a shock. Um, I'm sick of the lawyers dominating these kinds of conversations. <laughs> um, you know, the, anal- the analogy I draw is to impeachment, at which both of you guys will concede. Uh, impeachment trials are not criminal trials. They're there to basically just do one thing, right, is, is a sign political, for want of a better word, culpability um, or guilt or innocence, not criminal guilt or innocence. And yet, uh, as De Tocqueville kind of predicted, uh, the courts take over every political issue and then the legalistic language of courts, uh, starts to infect our, um, political language. And so I am totally with you guys as far. I mean, I haven't listened to the latest AO about this, but uh, I, I know from texts with Sarah and whatnot, Totally with you guys that the 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 Bra- the law stuff is pretty sketchy. From you know uh, what Bragg is trying to do, I just think that like as a political question, you don't really need to get too deep into the law stuff to realize that Donald Trump is a guilty, right? I mean, like no one, no one, even his biggest defenders, are like why? I never. How dare you suggest that Donald Trump would break the holy bonds of matrimony and sleep with a porn star, right? No one's making that argument. And
0: Okay, oh, so that's important. Guilty of what?
2: Guilty of the scummy behavior that he did, right? I mean, like, again, I don't care whether it's technically a misdemeanor or a felony uh, violation about recording a business de- you know, deal or whatever, or whether he, like, who cares? I, I honestly don't care about that part about it. I don't think he had criminal intent in his mind when he was doing this. I think he was a, he's a scummy guy. And people say, oh, you can't believe anything Michael Cohen does or says because he's a convicted criminal, lying, bagman grifter. It's like, okay, He was Donald Trump's right hand lawyer. What does that say about Donald Trump? Anyway, my whole point is that there are moral arguments to be had here. You don't have to care about the legal technicalities to say the guy is unfit for office, which is the real question here. And I think that this is also getting to, you know, Sarah and I have been going back doing this colloquy about Man for All Seasons. But uh, I think that the the larger dynamic here is a perfect example of something I've been, you know, banging my spoon on my high chair about for years now, which is that Trump violates all sorts of norms. In response, his enemies violate norms because they think they have to. And therefore, and then you have people on the right saying, see, they're lawless. We have to violate norms to, to punish them for their law norm violations, which are incited by Trump's norm violations. And it is basically this vicious cycle of, of mutual permission granting to be the worst, your worst selves. And so you have Matt Gates saying that you know, DeSantis should bar Trump from being extradited to New York because um, you know a rogue prosecutor shouldn't be allowed to do this, blah, 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 blah. People are embracing lawlessness because of the imagined lawlessness of the other side. And each side sees the other side as the real lawless actor. And it's all incredibly stupid.
0: All right, Jonah, colon, incredibly stupid. Steve, you're up.
2: Yeah,
3: So I agree with uh, everything that Jonah has said, but I want to dwell for a moment on a thing that he sort of breezed right by, and that is Michael Cohen. I think it actually does matter that Michael Cohen is a well-known liar who nobody should believe for any reasons, and I say this not because of its import to the actual potential prosecution, but because of the way that the media have handled Michael Cohen, I mean, all of a sudden this guy who for years we've watched, <laughs> li- some of his lies were just sort of silly, nonsensical lies. You'd watch him on Sean Hannity during the 2015-2016 presidential campaign. And it was obvious that this guy was just peddling BS. It didn't make any sense. There's no reason to believe him. He comes out after his falling out with Donald Trump, he comes out and he becomes uh, a main witness in this case. And all of a sudden, the same mainstream media actors who have, I think, correctly dismissed him for years as a known prevaricator are holding him up as a hero and seeming to trust his judgment on all of the particulars here. Now, as it relates to the case, it doesn't matter that much because... I think, as as you said, Jonah, we have documentation here. I mean, we've got the we've got the goods. We've got some of the paperwork, but I don't want to see him on a mainstream outlet where journalists are putting him forward to their listeners and viewers as somebody we should we should take seriously, somebody who's credible on, on such matters. More broadly, I mean, this is not a unique Unique view in this. I think it's unfortunate, given the flimsiness of the case or the creativeness of the the, the DA, however you want to look at it, that this is likely to be the one that, that that this is likely to be the one that that goes first. I mean, I think the other cases are stronger. I mean, David, what you wrote a, a piece about the Georgia case a year and a half ago, saying that this was where Donald Trump's real yeah. potential legal problems were. You guys have talked about that on. Ao, I'm told. Since I don't listen, <laughs> those are the cases. I think they're very serious. This is you're talking about trying to upend an election. Um, those are the cases I wish would have come first. I think those are the cases where he should be held accountable. All
0: right, Steve Hayes: Colon, Michael Cohen is an sob. David, you're up. I mean, I can't
1: separate this from the law. You know, like we're we're talking about a a possible, a possible indictment and my feelings about a possible indictment are completely directly related to the quality of the legal case.
0: Um, As they should y- be. Please continue.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> it's just impossible for me to think about this in any way separate because one of the things I've been arguing forever and ever is we just need to treat Donald Trump like a citizen, uh, not like a former president. This is a republic, not a monarchy. We don't have nobility. And would I want to see a citizen, should a citizen be indicted for this crime that uh, the Manhattan district attorney is apparently, and we have to add the, uh, add the parenthetical now, apparently, because we haven't seen an indictment yet, so there could be some surprises to it, but what he's apparently looking into, and I guess a, a good way to just sort of boil this down is that. He's wanting to indict Donald Trump, an American, just just a dude. He's wanting to indict a person on a legal theory that relies on an unindicted, he's wanting to indict a, uh, a person in state court on a legal theory that depends on an unindicted, unproven federal prosecution. Okay. So he's in state court. The case depends upon a federal case, not a state case that both the Trump and the Biden departments of justice chose not to bring. Okay. So that's a very important aspect of this. This is, and also by the way, he's potentially bringing an indictment that his predecessor looked at and at least before he ended his term chose not to bring. And so This is really unusual. Um, This is not the way criminal cases tend to go. There's a reason why uh, this has been called, if you're looking, if you're reading legal analyses of it, they're going to call it untested theory, novel theory. Even the guy who, the prosecutor, Mark Pomerantz, who left Bragg's office a year ago and wrote a book, uh, a pretty scathing Book about the um, about about Bragg not pursuing sort of bigger bolder charges against Trump related to all of his uh, financial dealings. He had a sort of a racketeering theory that he wanted to pursue, and he had said that this narrow Stormy uh, uh, Stormy Daniel, sorry, uh, theory was just uh, untested and too risky under New York law. So. You're talking about a legal case that is just risky and novel, and that's not how you prosecute people.
2: That's just not what you do. Yeah, but David, I read in Politico that that Alvin Bragg is a by-the-book, politics-averse prosecutor um, who just is just following the law here. Really? <laughs> I mean. Far yeah. be it. <laughs> that's it a shockingly
0: odd piece. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
2: I did not
3: read that.
1: That's Far
2: amazing. Far be it for me to disagree with that. I
0: put it in our Slack channel. It so was their Steve... main
2: piece the other day. And it was like, yeah. made him sound like he was, you know, wow. Elliot Ness just, just <laughs> following the law. His hands were tied. There was nothing he can do. Just with wait for the a novel movies. theory that no one else endorses.
0: <laughs> All right. So David French, colon, got more holes than Swiss cheese, yo.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, exactly what
1: I said.
0: I I think it is. So I have tried to distill my feelings and I will will try to explain them like Steve built on Jonah, I will build on David, which is this. Lawyers stick together. (laughs) Believe that, you know, despite uh, anything that David just said, that there are real questions around um, the legal case. There's merit to it and you think it should be pursued, there's, you know, sure, the five-year statute of limitations has run on its face, but there's all sorts of reasons why that statute of limitations doesn't apply here. And yeah, it's a state law based on a federal law that wasn't indicted, but, you know, there are good reasons why that's all okay. I'm actually okay with you. We have no problem, no beef whatsoever. Here's the people I have beef with. One of them might be named Jonah. (laughs) Donald Trump is guilty of stuff, unnamed atmospherics, moral stuff. And therefore it's fine if he gets indicted for something whatever, because I just don't care that much. He had it coming. It's like, you know, norm-based karma. And we just shouldn't get that worked up about it. Those are the people that I'm having beef with right now. More the lawyers who say that than Jonah. Jonah shouldn't be held responsible for his ignorance. (laughs) But this is where the man for all 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 (laughs)
2: seasons. You never let me off the hook for my ignorance. (laughs) Uh,
0: this is where the man for all seasons argument that Jonah's referring to comes in, right? It's William Roper and Sir Thomas More having this colloquy in the play. And Roper says. So now you give the devil the benefit of the law? And Moore says, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? And Roper says, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. That is what I feel like too many people are willing to do when it comes to Donald Trump, that it doesn't matter how you get there, just indict him and we'll figure out what for later. We'll figure out the why later because he's guilty of, bad stuff and we'll like the specifics of the law don't matter so that's my feels
2: i i I feels as i light my incense (laughs) candles that i have the right of rebuttal here i think you might so let me let me stipulate up front that i at at the beginning of my comments i did say that i agree with you guys on the law stuff that i think that this is shaky dubious at best uh, I also think I we agree. I think we all agree on the political stuff that this is a really dumb case to bring first if you're going to bring it at all, right? Um, and that it's going to help. I don't mm-hmm. think a lot, but it's going to help Trump try to inoculate himself from all future indictments because he's going to say, "Look out! You know these are all politicized." Blah 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 blah. I agree with all of that.
0: And I think already has. By the way, I think that ship has perhaps possibly, sailed. Possibly,
2: um, they're making the argument. I got to. I got to. I got a counter argument with that, but we can do that another time. That said, um, uh, and I, it's so rare. I get to elide perfectly into a Rolling Stones song. Um, but let's not have too much sympathy for the devil here. Right. In man for all seasons, Thomas More doesn't say, I feel bad for the devil. Uh, Thomas More,
0: I don't feel bad for Donald Trump. Yeah, So,
2: but this is sort of my point is that Donald okay. Trump has blundered into life. Always pushing the envelope, always relying on the restraint and moral sense of other people as safeguards against his own reckless, grotesque behavior. Um, what accomplishments he had in his first two years or so as a president were all thanks to these circuit breaker people, the grownups in the room, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, who tried to channel his bull and channel stuff towards good if you have a problem with people like me who aren't all that worked up with the fact that a guy who has spent his entire life looking for trouble, found trouble. Um, I have a problem with people who are trying to turn him into a martyr because of this. He invites all of this crap upon himself. Now, wh- like, I wouldn't have picked the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man to be the form of the destructor in Ghostbusters, nor would have I picked this case to be the form of Donald Trump's destructor. <laughs> that doesn't mean Donald Trump doesn't have all of this stuff coming. You literally, and I I really do mean literally, have people out there arguing that Trump is like Jesus Christ because of this. Um, I'm allowed to say those people are bananas and the idea that somehow... My only point is, is that, like, I was th- talk about Bill Clinton, right? So I was not disgusted by Bill Clinton because he lied under oath about an affair. I thought that was another reason to be mad at him, to be sure. But the underlying behavior that he lied about was the thing that we are supposed to have been uh, condemning. And the Clinton impeachment became this legalistic thing instead of the actual moral turpitude of the man. Similarly, Donald Trump's behavior is the thing that should cause all good people in both parties to say, this guy has no place in public life. He lacks the character and fitness to be a dog catcher, never mind president of the United States. And that doesn't matter if they can get 12 members of a grand jury to indict him for this stupid bookkeeping thing.
0: Okay, first of all, how dare you not roll over and play my foil? (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) But uh, second of all, no, my sympathy is no more with Donald Trump than it is with the Nazis in Skokie. As you know, the Nazis marching in Skokie is, to me, one of the proudest moments in our country's history. And it's not that I'm so thrilled that they had their swastikas flying high. Uh, It is that by virtue of the Nazis getting their uh, parade permit, I know that my free speech rights are protected and by virtue of cutting down all the laws to get to the devil that it's not that I feel bad for the devil it's that I feel bad for me because now all the laws have been cut down and that's a problem but and Steve I'm coming to you but I have to ask cuz I'm I'm laughing a little bit I'm curious David I think we might be getting to the heart of the issue here which Jonah is so good at doing annoyingly from time to time, which is, <laughs> I was deeply offended by Bill Clinton lying under oath. <laughs> As I like, I'm curious where you fall because you're sort of you've got a foot in both worlds there. Um, if if Bill Clinton had been just a normal dude who cheated on his wife with a young you know person who worked for him, I I'm, again I'm not patting him on the back for that. But, um, no, My outrage was that the President of the United States should never be lying under oath when he is sworn to uphold the very laws and constitution that he is now lying through,
1: yeah. So this is a really good conversation because it gets to what's the legal standard you should hold someone <laughs> to versus the moral standard you should hold them to. So, my view is that the higher you higher office you aspire to or attain, the higher the standard, the moral standard we should expect from you. You are a leader. You are, you have cultural power and influence. You should exercise that to the good. And so we should already be holding these politicians accountable for the failure of the moral standard well before we get to the legal standard. In other words, there should have been revelation after revelation after revelation after revelation that should have discredited Trump long before this so that by the time you get to news of, say, an Alvin uh, Alvin Bragg investigation, it's like, oh, you remember that discredited politician who tried to become president many years ago and how much of a liar he was? Well, it turns out he may have violated campaign finance law and New York state law and falsification of, of, of business records, but it's a stretch. Don't know if they're going to prosecute him for it. So that's the way it should have gone. But the way it actually goes is we've created a system where there's a cross, a tipping point where you can become too powerful and important for morality. And I used to say, ha that's what Democrats do. Look at Bill Clinton because the Bill Clinton story was never, well, he just lied about an affair under oath. He lied about an affair under oath that was a relationship that I think now people fully recognize as completely exploitive. And what? why was he under oath anyway? Because he was being sued in a sexual harassment lawsuit where there was evidence that he exposed himself to another woman. I mean and then it wasn't just lying under oath it was then taking steps to obstruct justice to conceal his wrongdoing and so yeah we we are where we are in large part because the moral guardrails have just disappeared so that all we have now are the legal guardrails it's i, I can't even tell you how many times that in the last 3 4 years The law has had to come and save us from ourselves. Um, One of the key examples of this is the election steal effort in 2020. Any decent political movement would have drummed out of it quickly the Sidney Powell's of the world. The Four Seasons total landscaping moment would have been not just the end of everything, but sort of the exclamation point on the end of everything, as these people are completely absurd and have no constituency and should just go away, instead, the total absence of standards meant that the sort of the saving grace at the very end had to be court after court after court after court, saying this is total nonsense and so um, my concern is and this is, in this instance, the legal system rather than being a backstop sort of against our failed uh, sense of basic morality is going to actually fail as well, and that—that's my concern.
0: Last word to you, Steve. How do we get out of this larger mess?
3: You know, I don't know that we do. I mean, I think one of the things that's depressing as I listen to the three of you talk about this is that. There isn't more talk like this, honestly. I mean, we're sort of going into the weeds and we're, we're trying to, to make sense of this and we're talking about appropriate moral standards and the, the letter of the law. And I'd say certainly it's been the case that the dispatch has been home to people who, are making, who have made arguments over the past three and a half years about the importance of process and the importance of following the rules and following the law. And, and it feels just so quaint, to me, because you have on the one side, if you look at the, the sort of the broad public debate, the the people pumping their fists and yelling and screaming, "Get Donald Trump, get Donald Trump!" Sort of, we don't care about the the details of the law, and you have on the other side people who just want to defend Donald Trump, but would defend him not just in this case, because you know, not just against an, an overly aggressive or creative prosecution, but will defend him. On the things where we know that he's guilty, defended him in the first impeachment, defended him in the second impeachment, we'll defend him on the, the stolen election stuff. And, and I don't want to be a, too much of a downer, but I am concerned that we're not going to get back to the kinds of national discussions that we're having here, that it's all just a food fight. Who wins?
0: Yeah, I mean, that food fight of stuff that we're actually not going to talk about today, right? The House GOP's sort of absurd response, the, you know, Trump calling for protests, people saying they should be peaceful, how the 2024 candidates are sort of put into this box by it and are, uh, for the most part, I think, um, you know, defending Donald Trump. Uh, There's all of that small ball stuff. But yeah, I think you're right. Like, I don't find that... Um, I guess I find it interesting, or I would find it interesting, except for this really big stuff that I think is really important to the future of the country. <laughs> and nobody seems to care.
3: Right. But do, do you agree with me? I mean, I, I think you, you you framed that the right way. I mean, it feels like we're the only, well, not the only, We're what we're talking about here is different than what a lot of people are talking yes. about. Because a lot of people care about the the this, this stuff that yes. you have just said is not important.
0: And again, it's like important for tomorrow, but it's not important for 10 years from now or, you know, when we look back on this era, we're not going to be talking about the House GOP letter sent from Jim Jordan, which again, I just want to say like, of course it's stupid, but it doesn't go to these larger philosophical questions about the rule of law, about process, about the role of character and leadership. Um, and yeah, I feel like people aren't talking about those things because- There's no good answers. And maybe it's because in part, we all agree, but want to make exceptions because the other side's really bad and they did it first.
2: Wait, so you're saying that Rand Paul is wrong, that Alvin Bragg shouldn't be thrown in jail?
0: Oh my God, that (laughs) tweet in particular was (laughs) so offensive. It is. So just to fill y'all in, so Senator Rand Paul tweeted that um, Alvin Bragg should be in jail. And when a reporter followed up and said, for what? He said, I stand by my tweet. That is awful.
3: He's been asked about it a number of times, and he keeps referring people back to the tweet. It's also, I mean, you do have to point out the, the irony of, of Trump supporters now who are complaining, to, who get to the point where they complain about the details of, uh, of Alvin Bragg and, and what he's trying to do here, um, you know, and, and invoke the rule of law, are the same people in many cases who stood at the rallies and chanted, Lock her up. About Hillary Clinton throughout two thousand and sixteen, I think there were real problems with what Hillary Clinton did. I wanted to have this same kind of conversation about her and about what she did and about the way that 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 was handled um, but there's a there's sort of a deep irony that that the people who are now pretending at least to care about the rule of law are the same people who wanted to just throw Hillary Clinton in jail.
0: You know what, Steve? I think you might have gotten to the root of my feels on all of this, because it really bothered me when I was at the Department of Justice, people you know, always focus on the Mueller part of the investigation, but we also were getting a lot of heat, pressure, light, whatever you want to call it, actually not much light, mostly just heat, um, about Hillary Clinton. Why haven't you indicted her? For what? And they were like, Uranium One, <sighs> what? That is the name of a company. Show me the law that you would like her to be indicted under and the facts that fit that. And the answer that you would sort of eventually get to is who cares? We all know she's guilty. And it was so offensive to me to hear things like that. And is it offending me this week? And we're moving on. We're moving on, I say. Dollars or ten million, they can help you whether it's business or personal taxes. Even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call one eight hundred two four five six thousand for a private free consultation or visit slash dispatch. David, I think we'll start with you. Twentieth anniversary of the Iraq war, and frankly, I want to have a similar. Um, discussion to the one I think we'll be having in 20 years about this week or era, which is um, how did the Iraq war change American politics and culture?
1: That's a really, really good question. And I I would say I had not seen the Iraq war really change American politics and culture or had seen how much dis- Dane for the Iraq war had changed American politics and culture until the rise of Trump. Uh, because by when Trump rose, my my sense of the American sort of public's view of it was that Democrats had soured on it because no one should say Democrats initially opposed it. There were probably a higher percentage of Democrats who initially opposed it than Republicans, but there was strong bipartisan support for the Iraq war. Let's just make that clear. There was very strong congressional majorities who who authorized it this was something that leaders in the democratic and republican party had supported and there was yes a vocal opposition but it was a minority opposition and my general view is that by 2016 things had kind of broken down along partisan lines with republicans to the extent that they had frustration with it it was more with execution that there had been blunders that had made the war more difficult than it should have been, especially the post-invasion phase of the war, much more difficult than it should have been, but that it was still worth fighting and Democrats who had turned decisively against it. And Trump comes in and he runs like he belongs to Code Pink, and which was disingenuous. I mean, there was no real evidence that he had been some sort of vocal opponent of the war before. And I don't know if he so much tapped into something that already existed, Or he had had tapped into some sort of underlying anti-establishment anger and that however he directed it, his people would buy into it, which also I think is part of it. But he definitely tapped into an underlying sense of anger about the war that I did not know existed in the GOP, that I'll be completely frank, I had not seen. And so, and then it started to create a culture, even within the GOP, that if you supported the Iraq war, you were a part of the problem. You were going to be furiously attacked, um, that there was no real argument for it. It was the consensus that all right thinking people now agree it wasn't right. And I don't think that everyone told rank and file Republicans that completely. It was an interesting, I believe, the Axios poll recently that showed that there's still pretty strong Republican support for the invasion which was fascinating to me given the last, you know, seven years of rhetoric from Trump. Um, I'm going to be, let me, let me put on a predictive cap and I'm going to think in 20 years, you're going to start to see some interesting reappraisals from the consensus now that it was all just a terrible mistake. I still support it. I still think it was the right decision. I uh, believe that there were ex- problems with execution, but it has become such a political hot potato, even on the right as well, that I don't, honestly, in 20 years from now, 20 years on, at this 20-year anniversary, I still don't know if we're able to look at it from a sort of a sense of historical, uh, professional historical detachment, if that makes sense.
0: Well, Steve, I was going to ask you a different question, but now I just want to hear your response to what David just said.
3: So, so much, uh, so much there. So I was a very strong supporter uh, of the Iraq war. I wrote a book about uh, Saddam Hussein's support for Islamic terrorism, including Al Qaeda and its affiliates. And I thought that uh, among the arguments to go to war, that was one of the strongest, given what we'd seen, uh, the attacks we'd seen on the homeland on on 9-11 and Saddam's history through the 1990s of uh, both building a weapons of mass destruction program and aggressive external behavior. I think one point that David made that I agree with entirely and I think doesn't get nearly enough attention It is really important to remember that there was a very broad bipartisan consensus to go to war. If you look back at the speeches, this is October 8th and 9th of 2002, the Senate floor speeches made by the most outspoken opponents of the war, many of them cited things like the presence of Saddam's WMD program in their arguments against going to war in Iraq. Ted Kennedy, one of the leading opponents of the war, gave a speech in which he talked about the threats to U.S. soldiers, uh, U.S. troops. If we sent them into theater, because we knew Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Hillary Clinton, in her speech, made an argument about Saddam's history of support for jihadists uh, and Islamic extremists. So there was a broad consensus. This was not the Bush administration lying the country into war. This this was there was a consensus view, particularly on weapons of mass destruction, um, that he was that he had
0: that he had the stuff and that he was a threat. But just to push back on that for one sure. second, isn't. Isn't, wouldn't their response be, yeah, it was the consensus view because we were all getting briefings that were not right.
3: Correct. Yes, I think that's true. And I think, I mean, look, if you want to go back to your original question, what's the sort of lasting impact of this? I think probably the, the, the first thing I thought of when you said that was this was yet another in a long string of incidents and maybe the most significant in eroding the sense of trust that American, the American people have in institutions broadly, right? Um, and that came with good reason. It turned out, I mean, if you, you go back and you read Bob Woodward's books, the number of sources that we had, especially in, in human intelligence collection, on Iraq's WMD program, but in particular on Iraq's support for terrorism, were minimal. At one point Woodward quotes uh, somebody who was a, a leader in the CIA's effort to collect against the Iraqi target. And this person, the, and, and Woodward says, you know, how many people did we have on the ground looking at uh, at Iraq and its, uh, and its support for terrorism? And this person says, I can count them on one hand and still pick my nose. So we made all of these decisions with a very flimsy, I would say, record of what was actually going on at the time the decisions are made. Now, that's different, separate from the long history of what we'd seen from Saddam going back to the Gulf War, going back before the Gulf War. We know he had these weapons of mass destruction. We know he was aggressive in supporting all kinds of terrorists. He housed terrorists. He gave safe haven to terrorists in the country. He supported them well beyond the country. Some of the things that we found out after the war was that he was paying Ayman al-Zawahiri, his Egyptian Islamic Jihad, for years. Ayman al-Zawahiri was Osama bin Laden's number two. Saddam Hussein was making regular payments to Osama bin Laden's number two. He was funding al-Qaeda affiliates in places like the Philippines, in Africa, what have you. So on the question of whether Saddam Hussein and Iraq posed the threat that we thought he posed at this point, 20 years ago, I think the answer is no. He didn't have the weapons of mass destruction that we thought he had. The Dofer Report, which studied this, made, I think, a convincing and compelling case that he would have reconstituted those programs the second the pressure was off of him. But he didn't have them the way that, that we had them. I think, I guess, my um, my biggest problem with uh, the way that the war unfolded was in its execution. I think there was a good reason to believe from the beginning, from the initial surge into the country, that we didn't have enough troops, that we couldn't control the ground. And the administration, I think the Pentagon of Donald Rumsfeld was slow to realize that fact, very slow to realize that fact, and uh, took years to, um, to overcome that fact, I think, it created a, a lot of problems. There were all sorts of, I think, more specific problems with the execution of the war. But in the big picture, David's, the, the Axios poll that David cited was so interesting because it, it was the case that 60%, 6 in 10 Republicans, said the U.S. was right to inv- invade. I was surprised that one in four Democrats still today says the U.S. is it was right to invade, but you've, you've read a lot or heard a lot this week about how it's cast this long shadow over U.S. foreign policy making, and it's made the, the conventional wisdom has made the Republican Party in particular much more uh, reluctant to have the U.S. take this leading role on on the world stage. And if that's true, it doesn't show up in this poll. Seventy nine percent of Republicans. Say the U.S. should continue to be the global leader. And a huge majority of Republicans, I'm quoting here, 88% oppose the U.S. reducing military and national security spending. So, as you've read for the past week about this new dovish non interventionist Republican Party, it sets aside polling results like that. And I think we're
0: unwise to do that. Jonah. One of the watershed moments in modern American history is the one-two punch of the Vietnam War and Watergate. And I mean, there's any manner of things you can look at in the last 50 years and people will say, ah, but remember, this is coming out of those post-Vietnam Watergate years and that's why the American people X, Y, or Z. And I wonder if the Iraq War tied together with the 2008 financial crisis really can account for a lot of our, at least last seven years or so of politics. And I'm wondering what you think of that comparison.
2: No, I think that's a very good comparison. And, and I've, I've, we've been talking here many, many, many times about the, the long tail of populist reactions to financial crises. And I think the coming on the heels of the Iraq war um, and also just the election of, of Barack Obama Um, which was its own sort of uh, move the overgen window in all sorts of ways, I think is going to be remembered. I mean, I hate the phrase of inflection point. I really hate it. But um, it's going to be remembered as something like an inflection point in American history. Um, And I think, look, I mean, I I think that-
0: I guess part of the question is, we know the 2008 financial crisis had a huge impact. How much of that though was- the sort of one, two aspect with the Iraq war. And that sort of, as Steve points out, this trust in institutions, that the national security apparatus, um, uh, somewhere between lied and screwed up, right? There's no like good version. Um, right. And that once again, these so-called experts didn't get it right. And this cost lives. And I feel like it was why people were so quick during COVID to say, don't trust the experts is, time and again whether again you look back at Vietnam or Iraq or then COVID this idea that like you just have to go with the experts because they're the experts there was no built up sense that that like no just no
2: no I, look i agree with that and i think i, I think there's there there are there are other threads that connect some of these things i mean i'm i'm thinking about you I know mean, I, I didn't mean to make it sound like barack obama's election was a disaster or anything like that but the, under Barack Obama, you let's put it this way under George W. Bush, you had all sorts of assurances from experts about WMDs, about how it'll be a cakewalk and how, you know, they'll be greeted as liberators and all these things, which are actually a small part of a lot of people's arguments, but they're the ones that got boosted. Um, and in fact, the whole emphasis on WMD, um, as Paul Wolfowitz admitted in an interview with Sam Tannenhaus that got blown out of proportion, um, was because it wasn't that it was the best or only reason to go into Iraq. It was the one reason that united all the different factions of the American foreign policy establishment. And so that was the one they settled on, which I think was a blunder. And, but, you know, you had, you know, you had Barack Obama and the administration constantly invoking its own expertise saying those other experts couldn't be trusted because they were all liars and partisans, but we're the real dispassionate, pragmatic, objective, disinterested, experts and that's why we can promise you there will be shovel ready jobs, right? And then there are no shovel ready jobs. And that the, the the stimulus will get us out of this recession and it didn't get us out of the recession. And so I think you have these multiplier effects of distrust that you keep going to the next example of something and oh crap, these experts aren't trustworthy either either. And I think the big takeaway from you know everything that you guys have been saying for me is how important leadership is because, including negative leadership, right? So an enormous number of Democrats, I think very cynically, as Stephen was kind of alluding to, said, Bush lied us into war. Now, those Democrats voted in favor of the war based upon, as Sarah was pointing out, the same intelligence briefings that the Bush administration had. So who's li- where did the lie come in, right? And like, But it was a very cynical way of saying, oh, I was misled by them to vote wrong, even though um, I know for a fact that, that Bush wasn't lying. You can argue that they were wrong. That's a perfectly legitimate argument to make. But you can't say that that Bush and Cheney and that entire apparatus knew that the intel was wrong and did it anyway, right? And so the popularization of this lay light us into war thing was really, really immoral leadership by Democrats. It was throwing... Uh, the the credibility of the government itself under the bus for political expediency. And you multiply that or you add to that um, Donald Trump coming in, you know, like, I mean, we were talking, we've been talking about how, oh, a lot of Democrats were in favor of the war and then they just changed their positions and pretended, you know, that they were lied to and all that. I'm angrier at this stage at a lot of my former, you know, conservative and Republican <laughs> friends who were much more rah-rah for the war than I was. Yeah. Who are now pretending that they were always, you know, you know, uh, you know, Lindbergh's on this and that they were part of the America First Committee. And they're like, how dare you like, try to, you know, like impose your values on Iraq and all these kinds of things. Like, I remember, you know, people like Victor Davis Hanson being much more bought into the freedom agenda than I was. Oh, oh, of course. Um, and now there's this whole sort of like, I'm a skeptic. I've always been a skeptic of American foreign power, you know, power projection and all the rest. And Donald Trump gave a lot of people permission to do that. And I don't think he had to do it. He could have, you know, like, I don't think there was this huge wellspring of hatred for Bushes, you know, for for Jeb or W when he ran in 2015. But the fact that he was willing to go there, he kind of created this environment where it was kind of fun to crap on the Bushes. And it took on a life of its own. Similarly, I think he created this environment where it was proof that you were willing to take on the establishment by saying you were always against the Iraq war. Leadership matters. And that's one of the reasons why I think you can get, like, you can get out of a lot of these mistakes by actually modeling the right kind of behavior. Um, But one of the things you have to do is not think that the most important constituency um, in your In life, are your ten thousand most ardent Twitter followers? Can I can I jump in real fast on the
1: the on the war itself, the justification for the war itself? You know, there's a lot of revisionist history there. That's all connected with the Bush lied, people died uh, argument. Look, there were a layer of reasons why we we did this. I mean, reason after reason after reason after reason, up to and including. Saddam Hussein was destabilizing the Middle East. He was one of the principal financial supporters of the Second Intifada that was destabilizing Israel and was horrific. He hatched a plot to try to kill an American president, former president George H.W. Bush. His forces were shooting at American pilots almost on a daily basis. Uh, He was a supporter of international terrorism. He was periodically menacing neighbors that he'd invaded previously and kept and was periodically menacing them again. And then on the WMD front, a lot of people forget that among the people deceived by the WMD issue, there's a lot of evidence that those people included Saddam Hussein, who believed he had a more viable chemical weapons arsenal than he really did. And in fact, we did find a lot of chemical weapons in Iraq. There's a a New York Times report from uh, 2014 that's one of the more valuable correctives to the record that I've ever read that everyone's forgotten about. But when I was there, we were finding chemical weapons in country. And that was something that was happening when I was there. Um, and now they weren't the the ready ready to use stocks that we thought existed. That is absolutely correct. But this idea that Iraq was a chemical weapons free zone is just Fictional. They were there, just not as we believe them to be. Um, I, I really like this. And finally, I, I, I really like the story. I was talking to a, a general. Um, this was towards the end of the war, towards the end of phase one of the war, and he had expressed anger that America had gone into Iraq in a meeting with Petraeus, and and Petraeus said to him, "This is you know being repeated secondhand to me, and uh, later on, but he says." Said to him, said to me, just put on your strategic cap and look at the map of the Middle East and I'm going to walk out of the room. And when I come back into the room in five minutes, you're going to tell me why we're here. That there are a lot of fundamental geostrategic regi- reasons why Saddam Hussein on that spot of the map of the world was particularly dangerous to the United States and the world. And so... I don't want to gloss over all of the reasons that existed independently from the WMD story that now pop culture has hatched in as saying was entirely false, which is also not the case. It was not.
0: Steve, I want to give the last word to you on this. Iraq War, 20 years later, you literally wrote the book. How do you personally feel at the anniversary?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think just to pick up on, on what David is saying, if you if you read everything that that you know has been published over the past week or over the past couple of weeks our sort of collective remembrance of of the war and lessons about what it wrought sort of sets aside what Saddam Hussein was and what he was doing in the in the years leading up to it i mean people have kind of created this fictional account of Saddam sitting quietly in Baghdad, um, you know, not really messing with anybody, not really doing anything. He, he was he was killing his own people to the tune of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, torturing Shiites, the majority the population in Iraq, killing the Kurds. He was funding and promoting terrorism in the region and and much well beyond the region. And it's hard to overstate the extent to which. Bill Clinton's second term in office, this is tr- during the impeachment proceedings and, and all of the craziness that went with that, how much Bill Clinton was obsessed with the threat from Saddam Hussein. Bill Clinton went to to the Pentagon and gave a speech about the greatest threat, it was the greatest threat that the civilized world faces, and that was the possibility of weapons of mass destruction, rogue state actors, and non-state actors getting together and creating threats. And I think if you if you look at back at the Iraq war and the decision-making in that context, um, it's the most intellectually honest way to evaluate it. But it also, I think, gives you a, a sense of why George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and these others felt like they had to do what they did. It's a very different question, though, if you say knowing what we know now, was it worth it? And on, on the one hand, thats it's sort of too cheap and easy to ask that question because we didn't make the decision knowing everything that we know now. But it matters to me, as somebody who was a strong proponent of the war, that we didn't find the stockpiles that we were told were there. I certainly thought they were there. Many Republicans thought they were there. Most Democrats thought they were there. They weren't there. So Saddam, I think it's fair to say, wasn't the immediate threat that we thought he was at the time. And you know, remember, there was a huge national debate over the meaning of the phrase imminent threat. And sometimes Bush people would say "in imminent threat," even though they mostly avoided the phrase. But Democrats tried to put it in their mouth. The, the people who opposed the war would say, "Well, Saddam isn't an imminent threat; therefore, we don't have to to do anything about him." I think it can it can still matter that he was a threat, but when you take away the immediacy of the threat, if he doesn't have these stockpiles, I think the case for war becomes a lot more difficult. And I say that as somebody, Jonah's right. I mean, as a historical matter, it, it is a fact that the Bush administration settled on the WMD. I mean, it was about 85 percent of the the case that the Bush administration made. If you go and you look at the Colin Powell's presentation at the United Nations as a proxy for how they made the case, and I think it was a proxy, it was about 85 percent of the, the case that the Bush administration made was on WMDs, I think it was appropriate to to make a a big case about the WMD threat. It's what we've been dealing with for the past decade, but I don't think it was the only argument for the war. I think they would have been better off making more of a human rights case and making more of a of a broader threat case, more of a a terrorist threat case. But I I do think if you look back now, knowing everything that we know now, I don't know that I would I certainly wouldn't make the same arguments that I made then. I believed Saddam was a threat. I don't believe it was an immediate threat. I I don't, hard for me to imagine making the argument that we had to go to war the way that we did to eliminate the threat.
0: All right, we're going to push our misinformation conversation to next week. And for a special, not worth your time, question mark, this one came in from Steve, which is surprising on some levels and I think very unsurprising on other levels. Buffalo Wild Wings is facing a class action lawsuit Mm -hmm from a group that feel deeply misled that their boneless wings are not simply chicken wings with the bones removed. I have all sorts of questions of how anyone thought that to be the case. Buffalo Wild Wings responding publicly. It's true. Our boneless wings are all white meat chicken. Our hamburgers contain no ham. Our buffalo wings are 0% buffalo (laughs) <laughs> Needless to say, we won't be covering this case on advisory opinions. It will be thrown out too sweet, I predict. Um, but thank you, Steve. I know how much Buffalo Wild Wings means to you and your family. And we're sorry that you're going through this difficult time.
3: <laughs> I mean, look, let me be clear. I'm not a fan of boneless Buffalo Wings. Uh, I think they're they're horrible.
0: Nobody thinks you are. We we know.
3: But I just like the response. I like the response. And anytime I can talk about wings, <laughs> I like to talk about wings.
2: They're horrible because white meat is so much worse than dark meat. That's the, the Oh reality. my
0: god, wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> but I will say I had a I had a rule for myself on campaigns. No pizza, no wings. And if you just stick to those two rules, and they're arbitrary, I will grant you, if you just owe any time that you can just don't eat the pizza or the wings. And that may mean that you don't eat for three days. I'll be honest, but you will not gain the campaign 20 if you just don't eat pizza and wings because it is all you'll be offered 90% of the time. (laughs) It's really a starvation diet.
3: But can you imagine how horrible your life would be if you didn't eat wings? Like-
0: No, I don't mean in life. I just mean on the campaign trail, when you're traveling, don't eat pizza, don't eat wings. That's it.
2: But you can be paleo and just eat the wings, right? The problem is you don't end up up being paleo.
0: There's all sorts of problems, right? Then you're going to get into CrossFit. Then you're going to tell everyone. I mean, there's so many other (laughs) issues. All right. With that, we are out today. Thank you, David French, for joining us. It was a real treat to see you. It was such a surprise. Thank you, David. Thanks for
2: having me. This was fun. Hurry up and get canceled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) and with that uh, we will talk to y'all next week
2: and then we got into this thing about are woodpeckers bad for trees and it's actually yes and no Turns out that like, if it's a healthy tree, a woodpecker is not gonna go at it because a healthy tree is not gonna have a lot of like, bugs underneath the bark for the woodpecker to go for. At the same time, if it's got a lot of bugs, it's not a healthy tree and the woodpecker can make it worse. Yeah. Nuance, very dispatchy. We had
0: a woodpecker in the spring briefly. And I say briefly, like two weeks is a long time. David French is joining?
2: Wait, what? What?
0: What? Adam, is this a special surprise for us?
1: Adam sent me the link and said, hey, do you want to
2: join? And I said, yes. Really? Wow. And, and, and Adam <laughs> felt like it was not something that the two founders and the host of the show should know. <laughs> Apparently not. I see. <laughs> wow. not <laughs> while you're actually
3: recording. <laughs> That's good. David, how's that second-rate media company you're working for now?